Good morning. Great to see everybody. Merry Christmas to be. It's on the way. Here's the deal. I'm a little girl this way. I love Christmas. You know, a lot of times pastors are all bah humbug. Uh, I hate Christmas. It's busy. It's this and that. But uh, I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I came early so I could personally light the candles because I like lighting candles. And I love the poinsettias and everything. I love it all. I love the whole Christmas deal. And I think everybody does all around the world, even if they don't get Christmas, even if they don't really understand the connection to Jesus and all this sort of thing, because I think there's this sense that, uh, you know, it's about life. It's about new life and new birth. And and uh, it's kind of the way things ought to be, or at least that's what we hope, unless we watch CNN on Black Friday, the way things ought not to be. But uh, Christmas in general is sort of like the way things ought to be. And I think that's why everybody loves to celebrate Christmas, because it's about life. Life is an amazing thing. We're sending a rocket ship to Mars, $1.1 billion. It's got a 2,000-pound vehicle on it. Jerry Seinfeld says there's no more guy idea in the world than sending a 2,000-pound SUV to Mars to drill holes and shoot lasers and drive around. There's a big debate. Should we be sending... So we're spending a billion dollars in a recession on going to Mars. Well, well, the defense was, I'm watching this on the news. He says, well, well, they said, well, why are you doing it? He says, well, because we might find life. And that would be amazing because life is amazing. Speaking of life, a year ago, we found a cat, a little bitty kitten. Uh, it was stuck up in the wheel well of a, of a Volvo station wagon. My kids come running in the door. Oh, there's a cat, it's trapped, it's going to die, it's going to die, it's trapped. And I'm like, no, it's not, it's fine, it's, it lives there, just ignore it. No way, that's not going to happen. So before I can stop them, they go shooting out the door. There was an electrician there working on our house. He's all sappy for cats and knows that he won't be the one that has to keep it. So he runs out the door with them. This stranger electrician grabs a squirt bottle out of his truck and they're off they go. So now I've got to go or else this guy's going to be the loving dad and I'm going to be the jerk. And so I go down there and now we're trying to get this cat. And sure enough, up in the wheel well, you hear this this desperate, cute thing up in there. And sure enough, you look up there and all you see is like a little ear or something and it's all dirty and grimy and it's crying and it's sort of clinging on there. So we try and get it out and it goes farther up in there and then the guy squirts it with the water bottle and it comes out and it's underneath the car, you know, and then we try and get in there and get it and it shoots up into the engine well and the next thing I know, we have opened this guy's car. They're not home. We've checked the door, we've opened the car, we've popped the hood, we're down in it, we're feet sticking out, we're trying to get the cat... And finally, the cat comes out, the kitten, little bitty, teeny, tiny kitten. And I have to tell you, it was pretty cute. And he's all dirty and grimy and greasy and wet because we've been relentlessly squirting him with water. And and he's just shivering and he's just looking at me. And we've got the cat and and I know already what's going to happen. And I've started my speech, right? You are not keeping the cat. We're putting up signs. This belongs to somebody else. We're sending it to the SPCA. All the way down the street, I know that we're going to own this cat. So, so uh, sure enough, you know, we bring the cat back. But, you know, I'm looking at this little thing, and I'm, I'm kind of admiring it a little bit. You know, it, because it, it just, it's clinging. It's fighting to survive, and it's made it. It's made it through this gauntlet, and it doesn't have a home. It's homeless. And it, so we take this little kitten in, and we name him Charlie. And Charlie was adorable. We had two other cats, and one of them was mean and hated him, and the other one was nice and loved him. And so they would play and or hiss and fight. And, and it was. And I convinced myself it was cute that he was destroying the furniture and ripping the curtains. And anyway, so we've had this cat for a year, and about a month ago, Charlie got pregnant. 
You see, it turns out that Charlie was a girl. And that dad procrastinated a little too long with getting Charlie fixed. And so Charlie started moving around a little more deliberately, and I knew something was up. And then sure enough, we figure out, because Dee Dee's the cat whisperer, and she knows Charlie is with child, okay? (laughs) With children. So we go on vacation. Charlie's pretty pregnant. We're we're thinking she might have these kittens while we're gone, and sure enough, she does, and and, uh, Tammy Arguez, our, our dear friend in our community group, calls us and says, she's had the kittens. She's wanting the kittens. And so now, you know, now it's just on. Now we've got four little bitty baby kittens plus three other, I have seven cats in the house. So, so anyway, I am really ticked off at myself. I really am. I'm frustrated. It's irresponsible of me. I procrastinated, blah, 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 you know. And uh, so we get home yesterday and we go in. We look, and there they are. And they're all with the mama. She's not Charlie anymore. She's the mama. And they're drinking the milk, and, they're, and she's cuddling them and nurturing them and petting them. And I'm sitting there, and I have this weirdest emotion, all of that anger and frustration, and we're getting rid of these cats. It just dissolves. And, and I have this weird emotion. It's like I'm proud of Charlie. I'm looking at Charlie, and she's sitting there, the mother, the nurturing mother, and she's had, she's brought life into the world. She's created life, and it's fragile, and she, and it can't survive without her, and she's taking care of it. So I sort of admire her. I'm admiring her, and I'm sitting there just transfixed on these little bitty kitties. And they're just, they're really pretty amazing. It's life. We're still getting rid of them, though. So. We have four kittens. It's an excellent gift to not tell your dad about and just get it and put it in the stocking for Christmas morning. We have four, four of those, okay? So just keep that in mind. But, but here's the thing. You know, life, life is an amazing and beautiful thing. It really is. You know, it sort of fights itself into existence in this world. But, but in contrast to life, in just the opposite way, There's death. And death, death is a monstrosity. It's awful. And we deal with it in two ways. We either ignore it and avoid it until it comes knocking, or we try and face it and pretend that it's this beautiful, noble thing, this passing thing. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, uh, you spend time by people's bedside as they as they die and and certainly they can pass peacefully I, i've been by loved ones who have died and i've also been by friends of mine and people in, in that i've known in ministry um i uh i remember being by the bedside of a youth volunteer of mine one of my favorite youth volunteers when i was a youth pastor of all time his name was doug zahn uh, he was like 52 years old and uh he was he was a ups truck driver he had been a new york cop and he talked like this, and he was bald, and he couldn't really talk, and he couldn't really sing, he couldn't really do anything, but he was like the right-hand man. You know, he was Johnny on the spot. And he was the guy who all the kids loved. Whenever he was around, you felt safe. And he was the one who would slip 200 bucks cash in my hand and go, make sure that kid goes on that retreat. Make sure that kid goes on that mission trip. I remember one time on a, on a mission trip, Doug Zahn, I look over, and he's, he's wearing gloves, and there's blood pouring out of one of the gloves, and he's working. I'm like, Doug, what happened? What are you doing? And he goes, yeah, I'm an idiot. 
I said, what do you mean you're an idiot? He goes, "Ah, I smashed my hand against this rebar with this hammer, and I felt so stupid, I didn't want anybody to know, so I just put a glove on and I kept working. (laughs) Doug was the most awesome guy, and the whole time I knew him, he had lymphoma. And most of the time, he was really healthy. But the last few months, it got really rough. And I was with him at his bedside, holding his hand when he died, when his life left him. I knew a man, Jim Irvin, he was one of the first army rangers in World War II. Larger than life, incredible, beautiful man. Sat next to him and watched Saving Private Ryan together. Watched as his chest moved and his hands shook and he began to sweat during the beach invasion scene. And he was old and he passed relatively peacefully. I was with him when he died and I was with my father when he died. 74 years old, liver cancer. And you know what? I wanted to believe it was natural every time. Anytime I've been with somebody, I wanted to believe it was beautiful and natural. But you know, I could never buy it. It just never was. Death is just this unnatural monstrosity. It really is. But you know, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way at all. You know the story. God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he created, in, in the beginning, he just created life. In the beginning, it was just life. He created a man and he gave him life. And he created a woman and gave her life. And he gave them dominion over all of life. And in this garden, in this beautiful, perfect place, there was a tree of life that sustained. And there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he knew was too great a burden for them to bear. So he told them, Eat of the tree of life and every tree in the garden all you want, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you do, you will die. And they chose that tree. They chose to be gods for themselves. And death entered the world. And suffering and sorrow and inequity and injustice and pain and all those things entered into the world. And the only solution there was, was for the author of life to conquer death and give life again. It says it right there in Genesis 3.15. Maybe you've never caught it. The, 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 the serpent is cursed. And in the curse, God proclaims. He says, the offspring of this woman... You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Well, who was he pointing to? He was pointing to Jesus. He was pointing to the one who would one day say, I am the resurrection and the life. But here's the thing. We think we meet Jesus in the manger. Most of us, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of Jesus in the Old Testament. We don't think of Jesus at the beginning of time. We think that, uh, of Jesus when we met him in the manger when he was a baby. Uh, and it, by the way, that's a feeding trough in a barn surrounded by animals with Mary and Joseph, the poor husband and wife that, that had him. And we think that that's when Jesus' life began. That's when he entered onto the scene. But here's the deal. In John 1, it says, through him, all things were made. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through Him all things were made that have been made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus walked in that garden. Jesus walked with those two people. 
He walked among his creation and he knew and had dwelt in perfect fellowship with us. He knew the joy of it. He knew the peace of it. He knew the equity of it. He knew the sustainability of it. He knew that it was right and that death is a monstrosity. And so began God's work to bring redemption to this world. And throughout history, throughout redemptive history, we began to see how God began, uh, how God revealed this plan and how Jesus himself moved toward this plan all the way up to this text that we're going to look at today. Sort of a climactic moment when he did an amazing miracle for a dear friend named Lazarus. So, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to John chapter 11, verse 17. I want to set this up for you a little bit. Jesus was away from Jerusalem uh, with his disciples, like far away. And the reason was because the last time they were in Jerusalem, they tried to stone him. He had said some things that were very controversial. When you told these uh, religious leaders that you were God, that when you claimed to be God, it didn't matter what miracles or things you did. That was messing up their whole socio-political religious system. And they wanted his head. They were going to stone him to death. And they left that city and went far away. And this is where Jesus and his disciples were when they got word that his dear friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was very ill. And we even understand in the text that Jesus maybe even knew that he was actually already dead by the time the messenger came to him. And he came to him to tell him this news. And Jesus said to the disciples, hey, um, we're going to stay here a more, another few days. That's odd. He's very ill, and they've come to get you because really they believe somehow you have the power to heal him, and you're going to stay there a few days and wait? But he says, we're going to stay here a few days, and then we're going to go back to Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where Bethany was, where Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus lived. Maybe you remember Mary and Martha. Remember Mary was the one, she was the passionate sister who, who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped it up with her own hair, and Martha was the dutiful sister that said, why are you wasting that expensive oil? And Jesus said, hey, on the wedding day, you know, we break out the good stuff. That was them. Well, this was their brother, Lazarus. And they lived in Bethany, which was just around the mountain, kind of on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, just a few miles away. So he says, we're going back. And the, and the disciples, are, what do they say? You're crazy. You don't want to go back there. They tried to kill you. But the direct approach doesn't work. He says, no, 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 we got to go back because Lazarus um, has fallen asleep. Well, they're, try, they're very obtuse here, right? They're, they don't want to know why they're going back. So they go, oh, good. He's just asleep. He'll be fine. He'll wake up. So then he gets real blunt with them. And he says, look, Lazarus has died. And I need you to come back. We need to go back there so that you might believe. Believe what? So Thomas, we think it was the doubting Thomas you know of in Scripture. He said, I love this. All right, let's go back with him, and we'll die together. So off they go. John 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the, in the tomb for four days. That was significant because Judas, uh, Jewish rabbinical uh, tradition said that there was, a, there was a notion that the soul would linger with the body for three days, uh, 
hoping to be able to rejoin it. But after three days, the body would begin to change and, and, and decay, and then the soul would leave. So, so he got there and discovered that the body had been there in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, here's the deal. A lot of them were just friends and family like you and I would be. We would go and we would mourn the loss of our dear uh, friend and the brother of Mary and Martha, but some of them were paid mourners. They had, by law, by Jewish law, they had to have a couple of musicians playing an instrument, and they had to have a paid wailer, a paid crier, a circus. Why? Created by what? By trying to figure out what to do with death. The soul lingers for three days. There must be uh, official music played and official wailing done. Trying to make sense of the circus that was death. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. That's interesting. You know, she was a little frustrated, maybe. She said, if you'd just been here, if you'd just come, I know that he wouldn't have died because she'd seen him do miracles. She'd seen him heal a blind man. She'd, she'd seen and heard amazing things about Jesus. But, but, but where did she, where did she find his power? Where did she, um, where did she think his power came from? From God. Separate from him. He was a prophet. He had a conduit to God. He had the, 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 he had the number to the red phone. If you'd just been here, you could have called God and God would have saved my brother. But, but even still, she had some faith, some understanding that maybe he could even still do something even though, even though Lazarus was dead. So then Jesus says this to her. He says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. So she says, um, I know that, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's not connecting with what he's saying. Um, she thinks he's just affirming this, this pharisaical Jewish doctrine that there would be a resurrection of the body at the end time, in the last days, at the coming of the Messiah. And she thinks he's just affirming that doctrine. Yes, I know, I know, I know, Jesus. I know that at the last day he will rise again. And it was very abstract. And then Jesus said to her in verse 25, one of the most radical things that's ever been said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. He's affirming the resurrection of the body in the last day. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right now, in this moment, he says to Martha, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. It's not that I have the number to the red phone. It's not that I possess power that God gives me to wield. It's that I am the source of life. I am the only one who can conquer death. I am the resurrection. And I am the life. Now let me stop right there for a moment. Because I want to ask you the question that he asks her next. 
Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I want to stop right there because that's what all this is about. Here's the deal. Paul says that if Jesus is not risen, if Jesus has not been resurrected, then his preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. And we are, above all, fools to be pitied. He can't be anything else. Jesus cannot be a good teacher and just that because he told a bunch of people he was God and he let them die for that belief. Jesus can't just be a prophet that has the power of God to do miracles because in the Christian faith, What's required for you to be saved from death is someone with the power and the ability and the desire to conquer death for you. It has to be Jesus. It has to be the resurrection. It's the only way that it works. It's the only reason these Christmas trees and these poinsettias and all these trappings that we've come to associate with Christian mean anything. So before we go on, I just want to give you the question that Jesus gave to Martha. Do you believe this? Not in an abstract way, with the personal pronoun. Do you believe that Jesus died for you and him and her and all who would trust in him? Because after that, if you don't believe that, you have a real problem negotiating the Christian faith. Let me say this. Uh, You might have heard me mention that when I was in college, I I was a religious studies minor at a secular university, and uh, great efforts were made in my religious studies class, um, uh, one of my religious studies classes, the New Testament class. um, The professor, Joseph Tyson, Dr. Joseph Tyson, was an atheist, and he was the dean of the religious studies department. And he... (laughs) he, Uh, he had personally worked with the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was a brilliant man, incredibly learned man. And I always thought there was something that he knew that I didn't know. But the truth was, he had presupposed that miracles were not possible, that it didn't make sense for God to enter time and space. And so he had to construct an entire scholarship of archaeology and history that would disprove the possibility that a transcendent God could intervene and do miracles. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to be an ignorant buffoon to consider that at some point there was something, that something didn't come from nothing, and that if something came from nothing, it was probably not something, it was probably someone. Nothing didn't create someone. If anything is eternal, it's not nothing. If anything is eternal, it's not a rock. It's a mind. It's intelligent. And from it, comes all of creation. That is not a leap of faith. A leap of faith is that nothing created you. That's a leap of faith. 
So if you've read a book or if you've been to a college class or if you've had someone persuade you that it's just a fact, that miracles cannot happen, that the, the, the creator of the universe who transcends time and physical things cannot and will not intercede and affect in his creation, uh, uh, change the natural order when he wants to, well, now, my friend, that's a leap of faith. And I promise you there's plenty of scholarship to refute that. But you have to start there. So what I want to do for these last few points is I want to start there with, with you and, and, pre, and presume that many of you in here are Christians who believe with Martha that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And I want to look for a minute at what Jesus, the resurrection and the life, does in this world, what it means for you and me that he's the resurrection and the life. So take a look at verse 28. When she had said this, or I'm sorry, one real important thing, verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. She went the extra mile. She didn't just say abstractly, yes, I believe what you said. She was very specific. She went out on that limb and she said, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the savior, the son of God coming into the world. And so the question for you this Christmas is, where do I stand with that? Where am I at with that? Because nothing else matters until you deal with that. Okay. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went, call, uh, she went and called her sister Mary, uh, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Um, we, we think that what's going on there, she's, she's, there's a lot of people in the house, and she's trying to give Mary some private time with Jesus. So she says, hey, Jesus wants to talk to you. So she pulls her out of the chaos, out of the circus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and go quickly out, they followed her, and uh, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, let me start over, when the God of the universe who created all things saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and his spirit and was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Let me tell you what's going on there. Um, this was not just that he was sad that Lazarus died. Does that make any sense? What's he getting ready to do with Lazarus? What does he know about Lazarus? He's already told the disciples why he's coming to Bethany, right? He's going to raise Lazarus. He's not worried about the fact that Lazarus is dead, so why is he weeping? He's weeping over death. He's weeping over the trappings of it. He's weeping over the circus that has become of this beautiful place that he created. And he's more than weeping, he's angry. That word that they says, deeply troubled, it actually means it's like he was, he was weeping like a, a, like a snorting horse, it says. And he was angry, but he wasn't angry at a person. He wasn't angry at the paid mourner. He was just angry at the whole scene. It was a tragedy. And so they questioned him. They said, oh, look, oh, he's weeping. 
Obviously, he loved Lazarus so much. But then one of them did the same thing that Martha did originally. He said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have also kept this man from dying? In other words, what's he so upset about? He's got the power. Again, to him, to them, Jesus was a power broker. He was a conduit. He was going to plug him into life. He was going to plug him into God, and God was going to restore him. And Jesus stood there and wept. And then in verse 38, he says, Then Jesus, deeply moved, again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, the pragmatist, the one who didn't want to waste the oil on his feet, she said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. She still wasn't getting it. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you also hear, uh, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of these people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, he wasn't showboating, okay? He was praying to his father because he doesn't do anything apart from the father, and the father does everything through him, but he wanted these people to know that what they were about to see was this perfect union between him and the father in heaven. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus tell them to roll the stone away? I mean, couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he have made it explode or made it disappear, roll it away with his mind powers? I don't know. Whatever it is Jesus can do when he intervenes in time and space, he could have moved the stone away, right? When he was resurrected, the stone got rolled away. It wasn't by the Romans. And why did he tell them to unbind him? I mean, let me tell you how he was bound, okay? When he came out of the cave, he's literally hopping, tied up like this. He had a, a, a blanket that was wrapped from foot to head, back to foot, tied around, tied around, couldn't see, probably slammed into the wall, clumsily fumbling his way out of this cave. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Well, rolling away the stone was an act of faith, wasn't it? And he had Lazarus come out of that tomb and the fumbling and bumbling in these burial clothes because this was an analogy to life and the effects of death. And he commanded them to set him free. So what I want to do for a minute is I want to talk about what it means for us to live as children of the resurrection and the life. There's four things. Four things that this means for you and me. First, our first mission in life is to believe in Jesus. It's to believe it, to sink or swim. Decide where you stand. You don't have to completely understand him. You don't have to understand everything about him. But do you believe in the resurrection and the life? You've got to deal with that question before you deal with anything else. The second thing is to share his resurrection and life. The second mission we have is to share it. Now, that bothers a lot of people, this idea of sharing it. And I certainly would never advocate being obnoxious or manipulative or trying to emotionally persuade someone to do something that they didn't embrace with their, with their mind and their will or anything like that. But let me tell you something. If you're one of those guys, 
right? One of the, one of the cynics that was leaning there and all right, I'll help him roll away the stone. And you're holding your breath and you're waiting for that stench to come flying out of that cave. And maybe the stench doesn't come out. Oh, that's strange. And then this little Jewish guy goes, Lazarus, come out. And then this idiot comes fumbling out of the cave, slamming into the wall. He's been in there for four days. He probably would have died even if he wasn't dead when they put him in there. I got news for you. You're not going to be worried about hurting people's feelings. You're going to be running around going, I don't know what this guy's deal is, but you need to know what I just saw. He raised a man from the dead and I took his burial clothes off myself. Let me tell you something. Everybody's on a mission. Don't let anybody tell you different. Don't let anybody from another religion, anybody who doesn't believe in God, say, you Christians, you're on this mission, missionary. I hate that. Everybody's on a mission. When you tell me not to share my faith, that's missional. You're telling me that the way I do it's wrong, the way you do it's right. And it's good that it's that way. You're on a mission to proclaim what you see and what you believe. I'm happy for a Muslim or a Jew or anyone, an atheist, to come to me and sincerely explain to me what they believe. I... I would hope they would do that for me. It's a loving thing to do. So the second thing we're to do is to share his resurrection and life in the right way. And that gets to the next point, to share his sorrow over broken things. You know, Jesus never condemns, the Bible never condemns people for being rich. He never condemns people for having a lot of stuff, for being powerful. He never says it's wrong to be any of those things. In fact, uh, we think that Mary, Martha, and Joseph, I mean, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very, very wealthy, and they were some of his best friends. They were some of his most dear friends. But he does hold you accountable for not paying attention. He does hold you accountable for not caring. He does hold you accountable for not seeing the world with the eyes of Christ, for not being vigilant and attentive to the people around you who do not have what you have, who are suffering, who are oppressed, who do face injustice. If you look in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 58, if you do your study guide this week, you'll expand on this and you'll study this, this chapter in Isaiah where Israel's frustrated with God because he won't, he won't, uh, uh, answer their prayers, even though they're doing all their ceremonial ritual to the letter. And he says this, let me tell you why I won't listen to you, because all this stuff you're doing is worthless. Let me tell you what real fasting is. Let me tell you what real religious ceremony is. It's caring for the poor. It's mourning with the mourner. It's relieving the suffering. It's relieving oppression. It's fighting for justice. He gives them this big treatise and he says, you want to be blessed? You go where I am. Because what I'm doing is already blessed. And where I am is I am wherever the effects of death have destroyed people's lives, either by their own doing or, by their own doing or someone else's. So the third thing we're to do is to share his sorrow over broken things. And the last thing is to remove the burial rags when we find them. Last night, I was here late, came over here just to check some stuff out. I was driving home at about 10.30, and I got right over here to this gas station. I'm stopped at the red light, and this lady walks out. She's literally 50 or 60 feet away. She's a long way away, and she's making direct eye contact with me. And she, she's making a beeline right for me, and she's talking to me all the way like she knows me. She walks up, and I'm literally at the red light, and she walks out into the street, up to my car, right my car is right there. She's right in the window. And she's talking to me again, like she knows me through the window. 
And I, I, I roll the window down a little bit. I know what she's going to do. You know, I crack the window down a little bit so I can hear her. And, and it's just this ramblings, just nonsensical, something about uh, Pizza Hut and $10 and water pills and surgery and hospitals and I'm not from here. And it was just all this bizarre ramblings. And, and I just looked at her and you know what? She was broken. She was just broken. And I don't think she was high and I don't think... She was drunk, and even if she was, that would just be part of her brokenness. But she was a part of the sad, monstrous, destructive brokenness. And I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, she's never going to be rehabilitated. We're not going to find a program for her that's going to put her, you know, she's not going to become a veterinarian or a computer programmer. It's not going to happen. So I drove around the block. I said, I'm sorry, I can't give you money. I drove around the block. I got her a chicken sandwich and a thing of water, and I brought it back to her. I rolled down the window, and I talked to her for a little bit, and I said, sweetheart, why aren't you in a shelter? I mean, there's lots of shelters. And she just kind of went on and on, and it kind of didn't make sense. And she said, well, I was in a shelter, and I didn't like it, so they sent me to another one. I didn't like that one. They sent me to another one, and I just don't like it, so I'm just living on the street. And I said, what's your name? And she said, it's Victoria. Latin, the victorious one. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to identify the nonsense and bring resurrection and life to it however we can. So in that spirit, for the rest of this holiday season, uh, we're going to be learning how to do that better. We're going to be focusing on the homeless with Hope South Florida. And each week, you're just going to learn a little bit more about how you can become a minister to the homeless. You. What we don't want to do is just be a church that sort of has a, a homeless program that we all support. I want everybody in here to sort of become their own expert on homelessness and on poverty, on uh, what you personally need to do. Um, so in order to do that, um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask my friend uh, Robin Martin to come up here. Um, I want to introduce you to him and have him uh, tell you a little bit about, about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, even for this broken place. Um, I thank you for finding me in my brokenness and uh, giving me the resurrection and the life. So now I pray for each of us, Lord, that uh, you would insert us into this broken place just as Jesus walked in front of that tomb and called that man out and you would uh, give us the, uh, the courage and the perseverance and the love and the compassion and the patience to continue to remove our burial cloths and those things which are just farcical in our lives that we might do that for the people that you've put in our world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.